Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Sold 60 podcast. And it is Sunday, the 1st of September. So we're into a whole other month. I'm trying not to make this so infrequent that it's monthly, but we'll see how life goes. Uh, still at the glass place. It's going strong. It's probably because at the moment the rates aren't that high and there's not, again, a few more hours this week, but the overtime's pretty light. And considering it's something that keeps popping up in their executive meetings that I'm not privy to, I somehow see the notes of, yeah, they're really trying to clamp down on that. But hopefully things pick up and the volume will justify giving out more hours because certainly some of the other drivers are making big inroads into that part of the budget. There's a guy that drives down to Canberra every now and then. He drives a really cool 1960s Chevy. Come across a bit like if you've ever seen the TV version of the Ivan Milat story, he comes across like the actor that portrays him not so much Ivan Milat himself because I've never met the guy and I don't know how accurate that portrayal was but he has a certain blokey it's the physical appearance and a little bit the character but obviously he doesn't you know run around killing backpackers as far as I know he just seems too goddamn nice though I'm sure a lot of people thought the same about Milat though not everyone going off what I've heard from podcasts and so on he had a creepy vibe this guy does seem generally nice it's just uncanny the similarity in appearance and general Aussie laid-back macho blokiness but what else has been going on I managed to see Lewis on well that was last night we went and watched a Vietnam War movie made and set well I think it was made in Australia it was basically yeah very Australian production it was a lot of fun. If you can call watching a bunch of guys that you slowly don't fall in love with, but they seem like uh, perfectly nice fellas and slowly get to know the characters. And one of them's a bit annoying, but then he grows on you and, of course, reveals way too much about what he wants to do when he gets home. And that's never a good sign. I won't spoil it. Yeah, it doesn't end well for everyone. And it's a true story. It's a lovely moment at the end during the credits where they show all the actors side by side with the photo of the person they're portraying so i think i've only seen that done with another war series which was called band of brothers the steven spielberg production and i wouldn't say it was at that level of coolness like just how well that was done but it's a different animal it's a movie rather than a series they don't get to explore the characters as much it's not in the european theater they're not traipsing all over paris and europe it's done basically within a five kilometer radius of this base camp in uh vietnam I'm trying to remember that for some reason, when I get on the mic, my memories just start frying up. But essentially, it's the... I'm going to have to look it up. And you know what? I might even go to the IMDb page if I can find it. I'm now doing the first ever recording of this podcast in my bedroom. So let's see if that works. I have to have the mic situated next to me, which it took me a while to set up, believe me. The laptop is starting to give me dramas in terms of what the software wants to do. And I have to root around in the uh, settings of audacity to make it work but i think we'll get there the typing kept to a minimum because i know that always is a little bit annoying but yeah let's go to the actual website we had already seen once upon a time in hollywood and hobson shaw i haven't done a trivia list for a while and speaking of that i did notice the other day while finishing which i finally did this morning the series the man in the high castle on amazon is a really cool feature because of obviously their own imdb where you can pause it and look at set photos there's a link to the imdb trivia page which is interesting so you can go and write content for their website and it automatically gets beamed into millions of homes around the world not just on the internet but um, amazon prime channel so that's kind of cool it's a bit i'd rather have some kind of keyboard and mouse interface because really it's a little bit harder than netflix to navigate 
even like the scrolling back and forth through the show it's not quite as smooth as netflix the 59 movies near me parasite i've been meaning to watch we've got the sydney sci-fi film festival starting next weekend so that's i think the the 7th and 8th i'm hoping to be able to get in and see at least one of those including the new film by the brothers who made the zombie movies that we had oh see my brain's just not not giving me those names but yeah basically there's a lot of exciting stuff and i want to see some of it because it's the sort of indie movies that don't hang around in the cinema they're straight to dvd or some dark corner of the internet and they're gone how many other australian sci-fi movies have i managed to catch in the last couple of years there's one i saw with lewis maybe two years ago that was pretty cool it was by the numbers but a lot of fun and where's that gone like no one else has seen it i can't remember the name even but it was a worthy choice for a father and son outing today's father's day by the way and I've got to make do with the fact that I did see him last night. And he did promise that he might be able to get in touch with me in between meetings. So that'll be good because generally it's like radio silence in between um, catch-ups. So to have a bit more of a regular interaction would be pretty cool. I even thought that it might be a great idea to have him contribute to the blog, Beyond Cosplay. Because really there's not a lot going on there at the moment until the next Oz Comic Con. I'm definitely going to have a review and breakdown of that. Once I find a photographer, that will help too. But basically, if I can get him to do little reviews, especially of classic films, uh, I've seen some of his writing. It's, you know, what you'd expect from maybe a 13 or 14-year-old, so it's well above his... It's smarter than you would think for a 10-year-old. But I still think it's with some help and guidance, a little bit of editing here and there. I think it could be readable. And at least it's something he can go back to in 20 years and go, oh, that was cute. And maybe have a side-by-side follow-up review again 20 years later, say on his first impressions of Terminator 2 versus thoughts on it further down the track. So yeah, it'd be cool to give him a space to put that in and I can get to know him better through that writing. Uh, Like he had written a little speech for school. It was a history class. I mean, they're all in the same class essentially through primary school, but it was a history project. And I think something like a five-minute speech. He'd already had a couple of pages ready to go. I got screen caps of them. Interesting stuff. He injects a lot of humor into it. There's a lot of just say, yeah, the Japanese finally attacked sometime in December. It was like, it's a history thing. You might as well give them the exact date. And little stuff like he refers to the genocide of Japan when they attacked America. And I'm like, yeah, that's really not what genocide means. But I'm looking forward to being able to help refine that clear enthusiasm that he has for writing and the subject. So, Because it was fairly on point and a lot better, I think, than anything I would have done at his age. So, yeah, it's it's exciting. But yeah, the movie I was going to talk about was Danger Close, The Battle of Long Tan. It's a bit of a mouthful and it's probably why I forgot it, even though I've been telling people about it for the last week. So let's, we've clicked on it. It's just showing me where it is. I want to actually go to its official page and see if there's much trivia. I did read a few reviews before we went and saw it because I wanted to make sure there wasn't anything that would freak his mum out too much. Obviously, it's a war movie, so there's going to be some violence. It's hard to avoid. But there was no uh, random nudity. Like, they didn't spend a couple of scenes in Saigon showing how they party. That was all strictly within the camp. All about the excitement on the battlefield and the drama and the chaos. Australian company commanders, CSMs, platoon commanders, platoon sergeants and scouts all carried cult AR-15s. They look much like the M-16. Signalers section commanders carried Owen machine carbines. There was an M-60 per rifle section. Everyone else had SLRs. The weapons in the film are correct. 
which is interesting because I did read amateur contributor reviews and someone was pissed off about the fact that there wasn't enough SLRs, but I noticed a fair distribution of both. So, you know, and it seemed like the guys into it, producer Martin Walsh, he'd made the documentary about the battle. So, and I know that they had a lot of soldiers who'd been there uh, helping out as advisors. So I think they got it pretty close. So it was started in 2008. So it took nearly 10 years to get on the screen. So that was from pre-production to now. That's about right. At the time, it was intended that Bruce Beresford would direct and Sam Worthington would play Major Harry Smith. Instead, they used Travis Fimmel, the guy from Vikings. And he did a good good effort. He's fairly intense on screen. His character bounces around a lot from like a surly guy that doesn't give a shit to someone that gets very emotional at one point. But it makes sense, I guess, in the film. In February 2018, the producers called for 200 Australians with combat experience in Iraq and Afghanistan as extras. So that's cool that a lot of the people running around with guns had experience doing so and made it look a lot more realistic, like the way they walk, the way the section spreads out in a line when it's, say, doing a patrol. That's all very important. Travis Filmer himself undertook weapons training with ex-commando and SAS soldiers in Perth. So it always helps, though you don't see him doing too much other than ordering people around. There's a little bit of action at the end, but it always helps to put him in the right frame of mind. Filmmakers used one of the actual choppers which flew in the battle, so that's pretty sweet. I'm sure some of the APCs as well. That's the first time I've seen Australian APCs used in anger in any movie, so that was nice. And they certainly, by the time they finally got involved, it was pretty cool. Could have seen a lot more of that. That was exciting stuff, though. You know, they were restricted by reality. They couldn't go too far outside what actually happened. For all the interior and close-up chopper scenes, they used A21022, which was one of the two choppers which flew in Little Paddy and Cole Joy from Vung Tau to Nui Dat. So it was pretty cool. They used the actual chopper for a lot of those inside shots as well. Conducted the crucial ammunition resupply and participated in the night retrieval of Australian wounded and dead. Um, I remember seeing some complaints in reviews as well about... The amount of back chat from officers to their commanders, like Travis Filmel, basically disobeys direct orders. One of the other guys does. There's at least three or four different soldiers that are like, nope, which having a brief flirtation with the army myself seemed way out of character for anyone that had spent a decent amount of time in that culture. So I don't know how accurate that was. I'll have to, there's nothing in goofs. There's something in crazy credits for some reason. Oh yeah, it's just got about what they did with the credits so many military veterans were involved in the production both as actors extras or film crew they are named and acknowledged in the credits oh of course they are what's in theaters now and maybe look at uh, something that i saw most recently which is once upon a time in hollywood which was a bit of fun it didn't really do a lot till the end and that's something that really stuck with again lewis was just like that was amazing that was really cool at the end so <laughs> I'm glad he has fond memories of that. But yeah, let's have a look and see how much there is to say about it. Because obviously they were talking about the family of Charles Manson. That's going to probably take up a lot of the trivia. This is the first of Tarantino's films. So it's funny, when you see the highlighted bit about trivia, it's not the first one when you click on Seymour. So you start reading that and then you click Seymour and it's gone. You have to scroll all the way down to wherever that was. So let's forget about what I was saying. So starting with the trivia for that, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Has that got to be his longest title? Probably. And I've got to correct my last podcast where I said that Brad Pitt was the only one that had been in his films, forgetting the huge performance that came from Leonardo DiCaprio in Django Unchained. 
where he actually cut his own hand famously in one scene with when he broke a glass and then just played on through like a trooper. Yeah, so they've both been in his films before, but this is the first time they were together on screen. Margot Robbie portrays Sharon Tate, wears some of her real jewellery, and Sharon Tate's sister Deborah gave her the jewellery. So that's nice. Very rare for a Tarantino film, some scenes contained improvisation, particularly when Rick Dalton forgets his lines in Lancer and rants to himself privately in his trailer afterwards. There's a lot of ranting there, so that's not really a big surprise. Plus, if you're going to let anyone do that, let Leo. DiCaprio had a very difficult time playing Dalton's roles, as Dalton would, rather than how he himself would especially since Dalton is supposed to be an actor of hidden range, so he suggested Dalton forgetting his lines mid-scene to ironically help him stay in character as Dalton. The following scene in the trailer was also unscripted. Yeah, so that is a bit of an um, Inception thing where it's like he's acting as an actor portraying a character, so he's got to not just be Leo portraying this character, he's got to remember to alter his performance to be how bad that actor would be even though he's not really a bad actor he's just got to finesse it a little bit so it's like the character being that character that's wow okay you got to give him points for that i didn't even think of that when sharon goes to a showing of her movie the filmmakers chose to use the actual film rather than recreating the scenes with robbie the real sharon tate briefly appears on screen i was wondering about that because it really didn't look like margot robbie whereas they put leo in a whole bunch of movies there's a really impressive scene where he's basically projected into the great escape at one point and i'm just like damn i didn't know they could do it that convincingly so that got me a bit excited about potential entire films where they just insert new actors and new scenes into movies from 50 years ago could be fun i'm sure it'll piss a lot of people off but hey the end results better or even just different but interesting why not the cadillac in this movie belongs to michael madsen it also appeared in reservoir dogs written by tarantino and driven by madsen well, that's cool. Bit of history there. For the car, I know Monson was in the film too. At some point, very brief scene. As the Tate party enters the El Coyote restaurant, Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring discuss a movie premiere they can see taking place further down Beverly Boulevard at an erotic movie theatre. Oh, yeah, I remember that. They have premieres for dirty movies? Asked Sharon. The theatre in question is the Eros, a real adult theatre of the time. The building still exists, though it is now a repertory cinema called The New Beverly, and it's owned by Quentin Tarantino. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing repertory correctly. Someone feel free to tell me how to do that. The producers had some initial difficulties convincing Hollywood Boulevard vendors to allow their premises to be fitted with period facades to better reflect the 60s. But after the production wrapped, that section of the shoot, most of those same people asked if they could leave the facades in place, since they now preferred the period look much more. Well, that's kind of cool. So this is why I'm here. Now and then, stuff will pop up and you're like, I needed to know that. And if I go there now, somehow, I'll know that all this 60s looking stuff is there still because of that movie. One of the Italian films that Rick stars in is directed by Antonio Margheretti. In Inglorious Bastards, Antonio Margheretti is the alias used by Donny Donowitz to sneak into the premiere of Nation's Pride. Nice bit of in-universe uh, acknowledgement there. Originally sceptical of the project, Sharon Tate's sister, Deborah, gave the film and Margot's portrayal of Sharon her blessing after Deborah was embraced by Tarantino and became aware of how her sister would be represented within the film. Deborah referred to Margot as a dedicated craftsman and praised the actress's research of Sharon's prior to meeting with her. In an unprecedented film production move, a section of LA's Hollywood Freeway, 
US 101 was completely shut down for a sequence populated with period cars. No VFX were used to recreate this sequence. So in a way, is that cheaper if they can get permission? Because VFX still as good as it is, ain't that cheap. So good on them. And it's always better to use the real thing if that's an option. Tim Roth is credited as being part of the gang Quentin Tarantino's regulars, even though his scenes were cut from the movie. Ah, what I liked. Well, I'll definitely be getting the Blu-ray and hopefully all that deleted stuff makes it in. This is Luke Perry's last film. Perry suffered a massive stroke in 2019, February, died in March. Scott Lancer is a homage to Wayne Maunder and his role in Lancer. Maunder died on November the 11th, 2018, 10 days after filming Wrapped on this movie. Oh, I don't remember seeing him in it. When on the second viewing, pay a bit more attention. One scene, a framed issue of Mad is visible with a drawing of Dalton himself on the cover. As a tie-in, Mad magazine printed the issue as a full-length magazine, billing it as a special Tarantino time warp issue. It includes a full-length comic book parody of Bounty Law, and all the jokes are written with period-appropriate references to the 1960s. I don't know if I mentioned that before on here, but I've read that, and I just think it's amazing. Tarantino has said he worked on the screenplay for five years. He sure likes to get things right. And not everyone loved it, to be honest, but I don't know why. He, he's touted as, like, the best, most interesting director right now. But I just I think he's amazing, and I love his work. But when you start trying to rank things like that, I just think there's different directors. Some, yeah, sure, are better than others. But when you get to that stratosphere, you've got guys like Ridley Scott. You've got so many amazing directors, and they're all really good at their craft, and you don't necessarily have to list them in order. But I always look forward to seeing his movies, no matter how long they take. The party sequence at the Playboy Mansion was actually filmed there, Tarantino having been a guest of Hugh Hefner on a number of occasions. Tarantino considers the screenplay as probably his most personal. Interesting. Not sure why, but I guess I could go read an interview at some point. In addition to his on-screen role, Kurt Russell provided the voice of the off-screen narrator. <gasps> I was wondering who that was. I should have recognised it, really. When Charles Manson goes to the Polanski home and Jay tells him that Terry and Candy aren't there, he was talking about Doris Day's son, record producer Terry Melcher, and his then-girlfriend actress Candace Bergen. Quentin Tarantino described Leo and Brad as the most exciting star-dynamic duo since Robert Redford and Paul Newman. With the that good, let's put them in something else together. And I agree, they were fun to watch. So that might be another sort of Ocean's Eleven thing they can do. This is Leo's first film in four years since doing The Revenant. Ah, yeah, I wonder why I hadn't seen him around. I guess he's getting a lot more picky, and why not? He's got all the money in the world. He doesn't have to do stuff for work. He can just do it because he loves it. For the character of Sharon Tate, Quentin did not approach Roman Polanski. He admitted this much in cans, but Tarantino asked for and received help from Sharon Tate's sister, who is thanked in the credits. Also, he gave Deborah Tate a script to read early on, went to visit her in Santa Barbara and spent a weekend with her. She even came on set when the Bruin sequence was being shot. That's where she went and watched her own movie. Before the film's premiere at Cannes, Tarantino begged of Cannes crowds to avoid spoilers. He doesn't like spoilers. Someone leaked his script for Hateful Eight, apparently, and got quite upset. I think he put out a full-page ad naming who it could be like the, it came down to like three or four people that had uh, potentially leaked it but you know the movie still went on to do well as they all do i love cinema he said you love cinema it's the journey of discovering a story for the first time i'm thrilled to be here in Cairns to share this with the audience the cast and crew have worked hard to create something original and i only ask that everyone avoids revealing anything that would prevent later audiences from experiencing the film in the same way i hadn't seen any spoilers too much so I just had to look up again if there was any nudity or anything, and thankfully, no. So 
it could still go on to see it. Burt Reynolds was cast as George Spahn, the ranch owner, but he died before he was scheduled to shoot his scenes. Bruce Dern replaced him in the role and did very believable performance. I think Burt probably would have not chewed the scenery, but just would have been like, well, that's Burt Reynolds. I wouldn't have seen anyone else. Yeah, I don't know if he could have pulled off being such a minor character. He would just own that scene. In the movie, they show James Stacy leaving the set of Lancer on his motorcycle. On September the 27th, 1973, Stacy was taking his girlfriend, Claire Cox, for a ride on his motorcycle in the Hollywood Hills when a drunken driver struck them. She died and Stacy lost his arm and leg. Oh shit, I don't remember that scene. I know that, I think Brad Pitt was on a bike at some point. I don't think he's a real character. I think both him and Leo are obviously playing fictional people. But obviously this other dude is real. So, kind of a, an allusion to another tragedy that this touches on. Madsen's yellow Cadillac has more screen time than he does in the film. Yeah, that's about right. The movie is one of two 2019 projects in which Damon Harriman plays Charles Manson. The other one being season two of Netflix's Mindhunter. Well, hopefully he gets a bit more screen time in that because he played him really well and apparently a lot of his scenes got cut, obviously for time reasons or something, not necessarily because he wasn't good. I mean, the movie was long enough as it was, so it's just a pity. You could have done a whole movie just with that guy. He's an Australian actor. Damon Harriman, really good stuff. The design on the wall in the airport is identical to the design on the wall in the airport shown in the opening scene of Jackie Brown. Okay, well, hey, if it ain't broke. Tarantino stated that the story consists of multiple parallel stories and is the closest thing to his early film Pulp Fiction. Uh, I don't know if that's true. Pretty much just follows the two main characters the whole way through. There's no time jumps. There may be one or two flashbacks, but that's about it. So that's pushing it. He spent five years writing it as a novel before realising a script would better suit the material. Huh, didn't know he had novels in him. On Sunday night, Rick and Cliff sit down and watch Rick's episode of the FBI. The audience is later told that the episode is FBI All the Streets Are Silent, 1965. That's a real episode, and the ensuing clip is the actual opening to the episode with one important difference. Rick was edited into the show in place of the star villain Michael Murtagh. In reality, the role of Murtagh in the episode was played by Burt Reynolds, likely explaining why Rick and Cliff referred to the gum chewing as strong. Knowing Quentin Tarantino's penchant or penchant for making obscure references, it may not have been coincidence that Burt Reynolds was actually set to play George Spahn in the movie. But yeah, he died. So that's cool. I was wondering who he uh, obviously filled in for, because clearly a lot of those scenes were from a 1970s, sorry, 1960s show, and they just edited in DiCaprio really well. So again, I want to see more of that. Margot accidentally took home one of Tarantino's on-the-day shot lists from one of her days of filming. She discovered it months later and was afraid to say anything. <laughs> when she revealed this to Quentin, he told her he practically throws them away when he's done with them and offered her many more. So she was worried for nothing. The casting of Kurt Russell and Zoe Bell as the man and wife stunt coordinators on the Green Hornet is a double inside joke. Russell previously played stuntman Mike in Death Proof, in which Bell, a real-life stunt performer, also appeared playing herself. Zoe Bell served as Uma Thurman's stunt double in the Kill Bill series. Editor Fred Raskin's first assembly of the film was 4 hours and 20 minutes. Now please put that on DVD somewhere. It's just all the period scenery and some of the conversations. That's the quieter moments of his films. Just make it for me. There's a young girl playing one of the characters in Leo's appearance on a Western. I think it's a movie. There's a 10-minute conversation between her and Leo. It's Dalton, and it just kills it. She's so masterful. She's probably, what, 12? Something like that. Now, he thinks she's 12, and then she's like, no, I'm younger than that. I'm like eight. But she sounds like a 40-year-old. 
it's done really well. And I know the script is written for her, but the way she carries herself, everything just perfect. The title is an homage to Sergio Leone, who directed both Once Upon a Time in the West and Once Upon a Time in America. Tarantino has cited Leone as one of his favourite filmmakers and an influence throughout his career. That could be Sergio Leone. I, I think that's actually how that's said. It's the first of his films in which Michael Madsen plays a character who doesn't die. Madsen claimed that after filming The Hateful Eight, he jokingly complained about how every character he has him play ends up dying. Tarantino gave him a brief cameo as a response. Well, that's cute. There's quite a few of these. I could keep going. I'm trying to keep these down to about half an hour. But sorry, once I'm into this, that's it. You're going to have to come along for the ride. Uh, I did have another article queued up, but this will have to be it. I went off track, but it's fun anyway. Tarantino was scheduled to make the film for the Weinstein Company, but severed ties when the assault allegations against Harvey Weinstein were revealed in the press. To avoid a repeat of the script leak, so he was scheduled to make this with the uh, good old Weinstein Company, but they severed ties with Harvey, obviously after the whole Me Too gate. To avoid a repeat of the script leak incident, almost cost him the hateful eight, he wrote a memo to all theatrical studios summoning them to send one representative to his agent's office in Beverly Hills to read his Manson script in person at an arranged time and date. The memo also mandated that each representative was required to sign a heavy non-disclosure agreement and read the script back in person. They were not allowed to copy or take the script and present list of demands and conditions to the studio management. This project was already one of the most anticipated and promising projects on the board at the time. After reading the script, Warner Brothers, Universal, Sony, Paramount, Annapurna, and Lionsgate were welcome to make a bid for the theatrical right before a second round of bids pitched to Tarantino himself. Sony won the theatrical rights in the bidding war, outbidding its closest rival Warner Brothers, making it the first David Heyman production not to be distributed by Warner. Interesting bit of uh, backroom shenanigans there, always good to know. For Tarantino, Sharon Tate had an angelic presence throughout the movie. He even considers Tate an angelic ghost on Earth, with Tarantino's own words, to some degree, she's not in the movie, She's in our hearts. Oh, that's cute. During the mid-credits Red Apple Tobacco commercial, Rick Dalton says, take a bite and feel all right. Tarantino previously used this phrase in his published screenplay from Dust Till Dawn. It is spoken by Seth, George Clooney, during that film's climactic fight, but was not included in the final cut. So he got to get it in there eventually. Tarantino considers himself one of the luckiest directors in the history of Hollywood for being able to cast Leo and Pitt at the same time. He curated and presented a swinging 60s movie marathon of films that influenced Once Upon a Time, which was broadcast on TV in 80 countries in the run-up to the film's release. Tarantino said, Sony Pictures made their Columbia Pictures catalogue available to me so that I could select a series of films representative of the era in which Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is set. They're swinging 60s. I'm thrilled to host these movies so we can enjoy them together. The ten films included were Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, Cactus Flower, Easy Rider, Model Shop, Battle of the Coral Sea, Getting Straight, The Wrecking Crew, Hammerhead, Gunman's Walk, and Arizona Raiders. None of those films have I seen, unfortunately. Uh, I do want to watch Easy Riders one day. Apparently it is a little slow. But it's got one of the most realistic scenes ever shown of people taking acid, apparently. So, according to someone on a podcast. Received a seven-minute standing ovation at the Cannes premiere. Well, they, someone liked it. The film was originally scheduled to be released on August 9th, 2019, the 50th anniversary of the murder of Sharon Tate and friends. 
before Sony changed the release date to July the 26th. Joan Didion, in her collection of essays titled White Album, theorised that August 9th, 1969 was the day the hippie movement, the free love era, and the 1960s as a whole came to an abrupt end as a result of these murders. Sounds a bit dramatic, but okay. It was a dramatic event. The Columbia Pictures logo at the start of the film is not the modern one, but the one in use in 1969, which is when the film is set, obviously. So, again, attention to detail, this guy doesn't mess around. He claimed to have written a role specifically for Al Pacino. Pacino was later cast as Marvin Schwartz, a fictitious Hollywood agent to DiCaprio's character. He didn't really have an important role. I think they could have dropped all of that stuff, and it wouldn't have really made a difference, other than being the catalyst to get him over to Europe, but... Yeah, it was good. It's good to see him. Marvin, I think it's Schwarz, not Schwarz. Uh, I get him to say in the film, he makes a very strong point about that. Shot on 35mm film, as with almost all his movies. Thinks of this movie as his memory piece. He even compares it to Alfonso Cuaron's Roma. When Cliff Booth is goading Bruce Lee into a fight, he refers to Lee as a dancer. This is probably a reference to the fact that in addition to his martial arts prowess, Bruce Lee was an accomplished dancer. And was the cha-cha champion of Hong Kong in 1958. And uh, I don't know if there's any drama here about his daughter or wife being upset about how it was portrayed, but it looked all right to me. And he did say that he could have beaten Ali if he was forced to be in that fight. Yeah, I don't know. It looked all right to me, but I'm not his family, so I don't really... It doesn't matter what I think. DiCaprio undertook a strict workout routine in order to convincingly play an action star, giving up pasta and desserts and doing hundreds of push-ups a day. Huh. I thought he was looking good. I thought that was just how he looked. Award-winning cinematographer Robert Richardson has said that one of the most gratifying experiences for him on the shoot was filming Al Pacino for the very first time. He'd seen all of Pacino's films, but having the rare opportunity to shoot him with Brad and Leo in the same space was a milestone. Rick is portrayed as a Steve McQueen wannabe. Rick starred in the fictional 1950s Western TV series Bounty Law, while Steve McQueen starred in the actual 1950s Western series Wanted, Dead or Alive, which was about a bounty hunter. In his final film, The Hunter, McQueen played real-life bounty hunter Ralph Thorson. That sounds like it's worth watching too. 1980, that was. Just made it into the 80s. British-Chinese martial arts actor and choreographer Jay Chung was offered the role of Bruce Lee, but turned it down, citing its lack of respect to Bruce Lee and his spirit. He'd also turned down the role of Bruce Lee in Birth of the Dragon for similar reasons. Huh. Well, the guy they got was all right, until he took his sunnies off and then he really didn't look like Bruce Lee, but up to that point, he looked just fine. That was weird. I think they still had him doing the uh, high-pitched noises that he makes in his films. Just like, ha, yeah. And apparently he doesn't do that. That's all done in post by someone else. Director's trademark, female bare feet prominently featured in a shot twice. Once when Sharon Tate watches herself in the theatre and the other when Pussycat hitches a ride with Cliff. See, funnily enough, I didn't notice those scenes at all. But yeah, he is a mad um, foot fetish guy, so why not? Didn't mess with it. Didn't like detract from the movie, so that's okay. The real Antonio Margariti, fictionally credited as the director of Rick Dalton's film, was a major influence on Quentin Tarantino. He was previously referenced in Tarantino's films Glorious Bastards as the undercover Italian name used. See, that's already been covered. Someone needs to police this stuff. I would take that job. Pay me anything, and I'll take that job. Margot Robbie had to wear brown eye contacts to match Sharon Tate's. Premiered in Cannes 2019, 25 years after he bought Pulp Fiction to uh, the festival in 94. At the film's world premiere, the scene where Brad takes off his shirt to show off his still muscular stuntman physique 
drew gasps and spontaneous applause from the audience. <laughs> it sort of happened in the theatre where I was too. There was definitely some gasps and uh, murmurs from the crowd, men and women, I think. I was like, damn, okay, he's 50-something? Yeah, it, it makes you realise, hey, it's not just getting old. I'm not doing anything. I need to do things. If I can't just use that as an excuse, look at this guy. Brad Pitt reportedly in talks for an unspecified role, which was rumoured to be a detective. It was eventually turned down by Pitt. Negotiations stopped, as it was assumed he wasn't interested. Quentin Tarantino then tried to get Tom Cruise for a role, but many assume it was the same role. Then Pitt declined, but matters never materialised with Cruise. Tarantino went back to Pitt months later for a role again, but this time the role was confirmed for being the stuntman character Cliff Booth, which Pitt would sign on to do. That was a waste of time to read. Whenever he referred to the project of Once Upon a Time, he referred to it as his magnum opus. Tim Roth and James Marsden would both see their roles cut from the final print. He played a very English butler to Emil Hirsch's Jay Sebring. Oh, he could do that quite well. But yeah, it'd be wasted. You know, give him a proper role. DiCaprio was quartered for several months to take on the two primary characters. The role was revealed to be the character of Rick Dalton, washed up former Western star. Their first being Django and Chain, like I said before. This is the first collaboration for Al Pacino and DiCaprio. When Sharon goes to the Bruin Theatre to see the film she's in, the poster of The Mercenary can be seen. The Mercenary starred Franco Nero, who sat alongside Jamie Foxx at the bar top in Django Unchained. Wow, these fans really know this stuff. Polanski calls his dog Dr. Saperstein. That's the name of a character in Rosemary's Baby, his latest film at the time. Damien Lewis, who plays Steve McQueen, was the star of HBO's Band of Brothers. When being cast for Band of Brothers, the casting agent thought he looked like a young Steve McQueen. That's why they used him. I don't think he looks much like him at all, but... It was a fun thing to see. You could tell it was supposed to be Stephen Queen, but yeah, it's a stretch. Love seeing Damian Lewis in anything, though. i still got to f- watch that final episode of Billions. It's set to re- have cost $100 million. Yeah. Well, that's just the set. I know, this is this is like written well before the movie was made, so there's a couple of older trivia notes here. Rick Dalton is not any one person because Tarantino made a conscious effort not to do that. He's a little bit of Ed Burns, Ty Harden, the man who would be McQueen. A little William Shatner. It brings Tarantino full circle with Sony after two decades with TriStar putting Fault Fiction into turnaround due to its supposed glamorization of violence. So yeah, back to the fold. After Rick and Cliff left the bar in the beginning of the movie, a news bulletin can be heard coming from the car radio. It's about Sirhan Sirhan, who, was, who murdered Senator Robert F. Kennedy, who won the Democratic primary, California in 68. The events in the scene play on February 8th, 1969, which was two days before... Sohan pled guilty to first-degree murder. That's pretty on point. In the scene at Spartan Ranch, the name Randy Starr can be seen on a sign. Starr was a real ranch hand and stuntman who worked at the ranch. He died during the Tate-La Bianca trial. Ronna Willis appears in the film. She's the daughter of Demi Moore and Bruce Willis. Oh, there's a couple of famous star daughters, including Cameron Smith's daughter. I don't know if that's mentioned here anywhere. We'll see. Eager to work with Quentin Tarantino again and to keep within the budget, Leo took a 25% pay cut from his usual $20 million salary. They still made, like, a shit ton of money. Don't worry about that. Third collaboration between Tarantino and Russell. Their previous films with Death Proof, The Hateful Eight, and this would have been the fourth if Russell hadn't been forced to drop out of Jenga Unchained due to scheduling conflicts. That might have been when he went to do that Fast and Furious movie. The background song in the teaser trailer is Bring a Little Oven, published in 1968 by the Spanish group Los Bravos. Shannon Lee, daughter of legend Bruce Lee, was most disappointed with the way her father was portrayed by actor Mike Mo under Quentin Tarantino's direction. She felt he was sorely misrepresented as an arrogant blowhard who was full of hot air. Yeah, I mean, that was played up for laughs, I guess. So maybe there's 
that's regrettable, but I still think it wasn't that bad. I think they're just being a bit sensitive. Tarantino is the third director to direct DiCaprio more than once. The other two are Martin Scorsese and Baz Luhrmann. I know Baz Luhrmann had Romeo and Juliet. I can't remember the other one he was in with him. Cameo Perla Hanny Jardine, the hippie who sells Cliff an acid dip cigarette. She appeared as BB in Kill Bill. Rumours have circulated that Jennifer Lawrence was being considered for uh, Susan Atkins, the Manson family member. In uh, 2014, he considered Lawrence for the role of Daisy Demurg in The Hateful Eight, which ultimately went to Jennifer Jason Leigh. In interviews around the release date, he described Daisy as a Manson girl out west, like Susan Atkins or something, suggesting that Tarantino had Lawrence in mind for a part like this for some time. Or hopefully he'll use her eventually. The character Francesca Capucci was most likely named after a real-life Los Angeles media personality who gained notoriety in the 80s and 90s, first as a newsreader for radio station KLOS, and then as the on-air music reporter for another radio station. Okay, I think that's uh, Leo's wife at some point when he comes back from Europe. Aside from one track, this is Tarantino's first film since Jackie Brown did not have a soundtrack comprised primarily of Ennio Morricone music. Yeah, I mean, love his stuff, but branch out, man. Manson follower Nancy Pittman was quoted as saying, we are what you have made us. We were brought up on your TV. We were brought up watching Gunsmoke and Have Gun Will Travel. Both of these shows were primetime, long-running Western TV shows, and Tarantino's film follows a faded TV star during the Manson killings of 1969, which we know. When Cliff Booth drives home from Rick Dalton's, the camera goes over a drive-in theatre. And the music that is played from the screen is the soundtrack from our feature presentation, a star clip that is used from various other Tarantino movies. So yeah, obviously you're going to use your own stuff if you can, and it works, it's cheaper. And it's just nice to go, yep, that's part of my language. Sharon Tate visits a bookstore to pick up a copy of Tess of de Herbervilles. This is presumably meant to be a copy of the book that the real Sharon Tate gave her husband Roman Polanski while in Europe just before she returned back to USA, saying that it would make a great film in which she herself would love to star. This was the last time that Polanski saw Tate alive. He would indeed later adapt the book as Tess, dedicated to his murdered wife. Well, that's kind of nice, even though he's a bit of a... And not to be left around the young ladies. Real dark history there. You've got to feel sorry for him in the movie, but then not a perfect human being by far. Brad Pitt ad-libbed the line, You're Rick fucking Dalton, don't you forget that. Rick based that line on an actor who told him the same thing when he was a budding actor in the early 90s. That's cute. On June 12th, 2018, moviegoers were surprised to see that the scheduled 70 mil screenings of 2001 A Space Odyssey inside the legendary Cinema Dome appeared to have suddenly been replaced by another film, Krakatoa, East of Java. In fact, 2001 had been relocated to another screen inside the arc-like Hollywood and the marquees for Krakatoa, east of Java, were part of the second unit work required for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to recreate the look of 1969 Los Angeles. When Michelle Phillips, a member of the Mamas and Papas, arrived at the Playboy Mansion, she is seen meeting up with her bandmates, Cass. The band's song California Dreamin' later turns up on the soundtrack, albeit not their version. The cast features a number of actors from actor families. Oh, there we go. Harley Quinn Smith is Kevin Smith's daughter. Bruce Willis's daughter, Spencer Garrett, son of Kathleen Nolan. Kurt Russell is the father of Wyatt Russell. And Michael Madsen is the brother of Virginia Madsen. Yeah, it's a whole family affair. I'm not going to list every name. The brand of cigarettes, Red Apple, is the same that Butch Bruce Willis orders after talking with Marcellus Wallace at the bar in Pulp Fiction. Love it. It's a shared universe. Leo and Margot Robbie start together in The Wolf of Wall Street as husband and wife. Yes, there's a lot. There's a lot. We're going to get through it, man. We're doing this together. Okay, stick with me. When the narrator is listing Rick's Italian films, he mentioned one by a director called Antonio Margaretti. Yeah, that's, as we know, another reference to Inglourious Bastards. 
During the scene in which George Spahn is, or Span is struggling to identify Cliff Booth, he misses his name as John Wilkes Booth. John Wilkes Booth, as everyone bloody knows, was the man who assassinated President Abraham Lincoln. The woman who questions Cliff before allowing him to enter and sitting one room away from this exchange is infamous Mooney acolyte Lynette Squeaky from September 1975, September the 5th, from attempted to unsuccessfully assassinate President Gerald Ford. Interestingly, Lincoln was assassinated in Ford's theater in Washington, D.C., and Fromm's attempt on Ford was in Capitol Park after he had entered from Lincoln Street in Sacramento, California. That's all a bit confusing. So wait, was that the character that questioned him before he got inside? Then she went and tried to kill Gerald Ford. There you go. He stated in an interview, Tarantino, that the director whose work most resembles this film is that of French filmmaker Claude Lelouch. The movie opens with a clip from the fictional Rick Dalton series Bounty Law. A man is shot and falls off a roof, at which point he lets out a... Yeah, Wilhelm scream. That was pretty... Even my son pointed that out. It's an inside joke. Madison Beauty, who plays Patricia Krenwinkel in the movie, previously played the same role on the TV series Aquarius. Ah. Guess he liked that and just said, hey, you do that again now. This is Brad Pitt and Al Pacino's first collaboration since Ocean's 13. At one point, a theatre marquee can be seen advertising a movie which is rated M. Contrary to popular belief, it does not mean adults only. On a movie marquee, there's a movie rated M. I'm not going to read the entire paragraph, but essentially that's an early version of PG. Not, it doesn't mean adults only. So that was interesting. KHJ, radio advertisements are spread throughout the movie. When Cliff picks up Dalton from the day of filming on Lancer, the building seen in the background is the former headquarters of KHJ Radios. It's now part of the Paramount Studios complex. Schwarz mentions to Dalton that he watched 14 fifths of McCluskey. McCluskey is the last name of the police officer who punches Michael Corleone, played by Pacino, in the face in The Godfather. Wow. Every name is referencing something. They're not just made up on the spot. Korean-American Mike Moore is cast as the Hong Kong-American Bruce Lee. The song that Rick Dalton is singing on Hull Baloo is The Green Door was a number one hit for Jim Lowe in 1956. Samuel Jackson was in talks for a while. I don't know who he would have played, but yeah, it would have really brought all the family together. Pan Am was featured multiple times. Leo, who previously played Frank, a fraud artist, who posed as Pan Am pilot and Catch Me If You Can. Margot Robbie played a flight attendant in the 2011 series Pan Am. Haven't seen that. And after now. When the casting calls went out in LA, it was listed as Magnum Opus, but no other information was given. Features three Oscar winners, Leo, Brad, Al Pacino, and three Oscar nominees, Bruce Dern, Brenda Vaccaro, and Margot Robbie. This is the first film starring both Leo and Brad. At one point, when Goodwill Hunting was making the rounds to get produced, all the studios and directors wanted Leo and Brad to star in it, a film since starring Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Damon would subsequently go on to work with Leo in The Departed and Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven, as well as cameo together in The Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. The last two of which co-star George Clooney, who co-starred with Quentin from Dust Till Dawn. Yeah, we get it. It's a small world. At one point in the movie, Leo states that he's one step closer to headed back to Missouri. Brad Pitt is from Springfield, Missouri. Yeah, so that's the scene where they're like, man, my career's nearly over. The Dalton character's like, I'm, I'm just going to have to go home to where I'm from, Missouri. And that's like the worst thing possible. It's all just crashing around me. And just as an aside, Brad Pitt is from that area of the world so big deal the working title was nine i thought it was also magnum opus i guess he had a couple emil hirsch timothy oliphant and james ramar previously worked together on the girl next door steve mcqueen played in the film by damian lewis was one of the top names on manson's kill list of high level celebrities mcqueen had planned to visit sharon tate on the evening she was killed but luckily he didn't yeah that would have been messy columbia pictures release intro 
is authentic for the 60s. Yeah, yeah, we saw, we saw that. It was recycled from an unknown Columbia's Pictures film from the same period and wasn't even remastered in order to keep it scratched and slightly faded. The only nod to modernity is the digital edition of the Sony name at the bottom of the screen. Yeah, they bought it in the 90s. As an additional piece, Columbia Pictures Television Arm of the Era Screen Gems is also name-checked in the film. It's sort of based on uh, Clint Eastwood too, because they just mentioned here that he, early in his career, starred in black and white TV cowboy series Raw Hide, later went on to achieve major fame through starring in Italian director Sergio Leone's Dollars trilogy films. So there's a nod to him and, I guess, Steve McQueen. It was a kind of a composite of all those actors that were running around at the time. The real Sam Wanamaker starred with Kurt Russell's partner Goldie Horn in Private Benjamin. Margot Robbie had previously appeared with both the leads. Who was she? Oh, she was in The Big Short with Brad Pitt. Okay, we knew about the other one. When Cliff picked up Rick Dalton, the building itself is an entrance to a studio tour for the public at Paramount Studios. James Marsden and Clifton Collins Jr. previously worked together in Westworld. Brilliant show. Check it out. Damon Harriman and Timothy Oliphant were both on Justified. They co-starred on that show with Walter Goggins, Previously worked with director Quentin Tarantino in Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight. Another co-star on that show, Jeremy Davies, previously played Charles Manson in the 2004 movie Helter Skelter. More small world stuff. Luke Perry and Rebecca Gayhart played love interests on Beverly Hills 90210. I guess they were both in this film. Brad Pitt and Scott McNary previously starred together in Killing Them Softly 2012 and 12 Years a Slave. Nicholas Hammond, who plays Rick's director, Sam Wanamaker, okay, so that's who that's supposed to be, on his episode of Lancer, played Spider-Man Peter Parker in the Amazing Spider-Man television series, 79. Oh, showing his age. When Al Pacino's character of Marvin Schwartz is pronounced, his surname is mispronounced to sound like Schultz, which is the surname of Christopher Waltz's character in Django Unchained. Okay, so even that's a reference to another one of his movies. Another song by the Mamas and Papas, 1230, is heard later in the film. The song is about Laurel Canyon, where a lot of 60s musicians, such as Jim Morrison, Carole King, Joni Mitchell, and Peter Tork, lived. There are, of course, a lot of young girls in this film. The Tate Polanski house was in the Benedict Canyon, but another massacre, the Wonderland Murders, took place in Laurel Canyon in 1981. God, I didn't realise there were so many, but I've definitely heard of the Wonderland Murders. Hopefully that was the last canyon massacre for a while. A flashback shows Rick Dalton training to use a flamethrower. Yeah, that's the, what would you call, foreshadowing. This is Leo's genuine reaction to the flamethrower, where he recalled from the heat. Tarantino thought it was funny and left it in the movie. Donald Shorty She was a stuntman who worked on the Span Ranch. He was a final victim of the Manson family and tried to warn Span about being taken advantage of by Manson and his followers. In this movie, Brad Pitt's Cliff Booth is a stuntman who, while visiting the ranch, seeks his old acquaintance Span to find out about the hippies. And by that point, he's lost his mind almost. When Cliff recognises the family members from his visit to the Span Ranch, he can't remember Tex Watson's name. Tex responds by saying, I'm the devil, and I came to do the devil's business. The real-life Tex Watson said this exact phrase to the victims at Sharon Tate's house before they were murdered. I guess one survived, or one of... I don't know how they know that. They all died. Director's trademark. Mexican standoff. Many Tarantino films have featured Mexican standoffs. This film has one too, but with a twist. Tex points his revolver at a stoned cliff, or he's more on acid than stoned, but okay. He responds by making a mock gun with his hand and pointing it back at Tex. Yeah, that was really one of my favourite scenes. Just doesn't care what's going on. It's like, yeah, well that's cute. A gun. What are you going to do with that? Not much, as it turns out. The scenes of DiCaprio's character in The Great Escape digitally inserted. Tarantino is not known to be a lover of CGI effects, but this was the only way to accomplish this iconic scene, as there was no realistic way to recreate it 
due to the age of the film and the death of all the original actors. Yeah, I love that. The movie can be seen as revisionist fiction, with several made-up characters interacting with existing ones, thereby changing the course of real-life history. In this case, the infamous Sharon Tate murders are disrupted by the presence of Rick and Cliff Booth, Brad Pitt. The film accurately shows Charles Manson visiting Tate's house early in the film, looking for music producer Terry Melcher, the previous renter, because he felt that Melcher owed him the record deal that he was once promised. Frustrated that Melcher no longer lived there, Manson instructed four of his followers to go to the house six months later to incite a slaughter. The four indeed drove over there, briefly parked on the driveway, to cut the phone lines to Tate's house, and then proceeded to park the car at the bottom of the hill. Went back on foot and killed five people, Tate, three of her friends, and one friend who just came visiting. Probably the first significant point of divergence is the fact that Dalton notices the four as they're parked. He gets out, verbally abuses them, and sends them away. This angers Tex, and the three women to the point where they decide to come back and invade Dalton's house instead. This incident also causes the woman Flower Child, Maya Hawk, to get cold feet and leave. In real life, this was Linda Casablan, was it Casabian, who accompanied the others all the way but did not participate in the killing. In the end, a fatal mistake on the part of the killers is invading Dalton's home, not counting on the resistance of Booth and his dog and Dalton himself. Brilliant scene. Worth getting through all the other stuff for that. Not that I minded the beginning, but such a change in pace and tone. The character Flower Child, who is shown having cold feet on going through with the murders, and who flees the scene in The Rambler, is based on Linda Casabian, who becomes a witness for the prosecution. So that's how they probably knew what he said when he came in. In real life, Casabian was ordered by text to wait in the car, during which she heard the murders inside take place, and witnessed the murder of the Polish guy outside the house. The, the name I'm not going to massacre. Casabian claimed she wanted to drive away but was too scared. Okay. History will remember you as being really much a wet rag. At least she didn't kill anyone but mine. The movie establishes that Sharon and her friends aren't killed by Charles Manson's followers after these ones decide attack Dalton's house. That's I'm reading this verbatim. Creating an alternate reality like he did with uh, Inglorious Bastards. It's a what if basically and I'm okay with that. They do so well with it. Let's just, just just imagine a better world. It's a bit like the man in the high castle. Though in that case, you're imagining a worse world. One of the worst I've ever seen, other than probably Handmaiden's Tale. That is just truly horrific. Originally, Cliff was to win the rubber match between him and Bruce Lee. However, it was changed to a tie as Tarantino didn't want to belittle further an actor whom he admired. However, the scene also hints that Cliff was a Green Beret with deadly fighting skills during World War II, which he used when he beats up Clem at the Span Ranch and the two of the hippies at Rick's house. Dalton questions Wanamaker how the public will recognise him due to the disguise created for his character. It's loosely inspired in Once Upon a Time in the West where Henry Fonda tried to disguise himself to avoid the public recognising him as the villain Frank. Okay, so that wasn't just in a vacuum. That's been done before. The ending was deliberately omitted from the copies of scripts in order to keep it secret. The only people who knew the ending right at the beginning of the production Apart from Tarantino, with the lead actors themselves, a close friend of Roman Polanski, who Tarantino showed the entire script, Robert Richardson said that he and other main crew members were only told two months prior to filming the climax. Others knew much later into filming or during post-production. An example would be that Margaret Qualley only found out through Brad Pitt while filming at the Span Ranch set. Yeah. So that's all the trivia. There's some goofs here, which uh, might break my heart. God, they really... Whenever you get a movie this... Uh, you know, his ninth film, not his last, hopefully, but Tarantino movie. People just go to town on it. When Margot Robbie is talking to the girls at the box office, 
You can see the Starbucks sign for half the scene before it was covered up. Yeah, it wasn't founded. It was founded in 71, which is earlier than I thought. When Cliff drives home on the freeway, there's a clearly visible numbered exit sign. So they didn't use them until 2002. In the movie, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski attend a party at the mansion, Playboy Mansion. Although there was a Playboy club in 69, Hefner did not buy the Playboy Mansion until 1971. Okay, so that's a pretty big goof. But I mean, it just makes, that, that scene is pretty cool. He had a club, not a mansion, but you got to, I mean, close enough. That's just, it's a what if, it's alternate reality. Let's just say he bought it two years earlier. Not that big a deal. That's why I let a lot of these go. Come on, it's a movie. As long as it's not really ridiculous. Pan Am did not introduce the Boeing 747 until January 1970, five months after the murders. Yeah, see again, alternate reality. Just lets a lot of this stuff slide. The Pussycat Theatre on Hollywood Boulevard. But that did not open until 74. Oh no. The watch Cliff can be seen wearing is a Citizen Challenge timer. Again, not released till 72. When Cliff drives through Hollywood at night, back to his trailer, he passes an illuminated subway restaurant that didn't open till 78. So that's nearly 10 years out. But it, And that's longer than I thought they'd been around. I think they were in New York originally. Because all the early... The first couple of times I went to a subway, they just had New York subway map on the walls. So when Dalton meets the little girl actor, great scene, sits on the set with her while she's reading a book, he pulls out a pack of Parliament cigarettes and lights one up. The Parliament pack had a much different design in 69. The one shown came out years later. I don't know if they would have made that mistake with Mad Men, because I remember they were fairly on point with packaging and all the stuff that you see in that series. They they really kept to the 60s original look. So there's a, well, I'm not going to read out the whole thing, but Marvin Schorsch warns Rick he might end up playing villains on Man From U.N.C.L.E., but all those Man From U.N.C.L.E. shows had been cancelled by then. The theatre marquee shows Lady in Cement with a GP rating that wasn't introduced till early 70. When on the set for Lancer, several modern intermodal containers are in the background being used. These weren't available for decades. Yeah, okay, that's a bit worse. The movie takes place in 69. Pandora's box was demolished in 67, but in one scene, he's driving past it. So that's a weird one. Mostly there's stuff that's like way later and it's like that shouldn't be there yet but there's one scene where there's something that is already gone that they obviously create in post whose job was that you had one job dude way too much swearing for 69 anyone shouting fuck in Musso, Musso and Franks would have been politely asked to turn it down or leave so that's a cultural goof I don't know if that's just have to take the word for that we see the Polanski character using a French coffee press was invented in 29 but the design here Comes from the 80s. Oh. Well, Sam Wanamaker did, in fact, direct the first episode, Lancer, The High Riders of Lancer. That aired in 1968, five months ahead. Oh, that's not a big deal. A couple of times, the new slimmer version of LED streetlights are visible in the background. These were introduced in 2010. Oh, God. Kill me. Huh. There's a car guy that should be of interest to me. It's not that big a deal, but you see him driving an old vintage VW Carmen gear, the Brad Pitt character. He drives off with the car's engine in high gear. The sound we hear, however... Seems to be not that of the typical air-cooled engine VW motor, but more that of a sports car with a conventional engine. Oh no. Well, he's pretty handy. He could have done an engine swap. Who knows? Francesca is supposed to be Italian. Rick met and married her in Italy, yet her accent is clearly Spanish. Apparently the actress is of Italian descent, but from Chile. Yeah, that's not great. I mean, they don't really say... I mean, he met her in Italy, but it could be a similar thing. In character, she could have grown up somewhere else, so no big deal. Continuity. Nah, not too worried about that. Like, he's known for adding deliberate continuity errors into his movies. There's several examples in this one, but the most obvious is as James Stacy comes over to talk to Rick on set. Initially, he's bareheaded. His cowboy hat hangs down his back. There's a sudden edit jump, and now the hat's on his head. So I don't think he wouldn't see that. 
Like that's just like, here's one for the detail freaks. There's a lot of stuff like statues facing left, then in another scene it's facing right. Hair getting messed up, then it's perfectly combed. The rearview mirror of the Cadillac disappearing and appearing from shot to shot. When Stacy parks his horse across the saloon, the horse is standing in the shadow, then it's standing in the sun. That could just be time passing. Shadows do move. Though if it was like a direct cut almost within seconds then yeah maybe that's not great cliff is given a cigarette said to have been dipped in lsd but smoking anything dipped in lsd would not work because when lit the fire would destroy the lsd huh yeah because i've never heard of that lsd cannot be smoked it only works with eaten or when liquid is dropped in the mouth or a very powerful lsd can sometimes be absorbed through the skin pcp and embalming fluid are the drugs that work when dipped dried and smoked people would dip lace a cigarette in pcp or embalming fluid and then sell them on the street okay so that's a bit off and yeah weirdly my son was like oh i want to do that walk a dog while on acid and i was like yeah give it 10 years at least do it once don't go crazy during his fight with cliff bruce lee is depicted with longer hair he spotted in the early 70s and not the short haircut he had during his time on the green hornet yeah that's an unfortunate error Again, with the 747, the model is in at least one of the flight scenes. The wrong model was shown. A model of a 747-800 series with some of the windows edited out was used. The 800 didn't fly until the 2000s. So a real plane geek would be bothered about that. For me, I'm more bothered if they like throw a 2000 model car into a background. That would piss me off. Like, come on, why is there a Hummer driving around in the 60s? Oh, okay, so... And incorrectly regarded as a goof note, the item on LSD cigarettes not working to give a high... The LSD dipped cigarettes were sold on the street in broad daylight by hippies looking to make a buck. So I didn't think he would have just made that up and got it wrong. In this case, 50 cents. He would have got the, the amount right too. They could care less whether they actually worked. The cigarettes were dipped in anything. Saying it was LSD is a new way to get high was a sales trick. They just wanted the money, of course. While it's true that a cigarette would not do anything dipped in LSD, the cigarette does seem to get cliff stoned. It could, however, have been dipped in PCP, which could be inhaled when smoked. And the hippie girl's just calling it LSD. So PCP probably explains why he was so amped and ready for action. Because that's, from what brief knowledge I've got, it dulls the pain sensors and people can just fight through anything. So here's another incorrect as goof thing. Bruce Lee appears in his Kato costume, but the series was cancelled in 67. Although the movie is set in 69. After it was cancelled, the scene with Bruce Lee was a flashback to when Cliff was working on the show and got fired, presumably in 67 or thereabouts. Yeah, but he still shouldn't have had long hair. Well, that's a bad one. When Cliff is driving the caddy, let's just say the speedo's broken because you can clearly see the speedometer is at zero sometimes. The dog actor is a male... Well, the dog character is a female. That's a pretty big goof. As Pitt is driving DiCaprio through the streets of LA, in the background you can see green lights indicating the street was closed for the shot as otherwise Pitt was just driving through red light after red light after red light. I can live with that. I mean, sometimes you just gotta let that shit go. And speaking of that, I think that's time for us to wrap up. God knows after the edit how long this is going to be, but uh, hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. I certainly found out a lot more about that movie. It makes me want to go and read some actual interviews and stuff and, and some more critique. It's still a bit of a mystery to me how that all came together. That's one thing about his movies. They don't follow the usual conventions and the usual story arc and three-act structure. It's just all over the place. So it's probably why they still uh, study them in films. So that's it for now. Thank you for listening. It's been good times as always. Back to work tomorrow though, and God knows when we're back on here, but it will happen eventually. So don't worry about that. We'll be back soon with more entertaining news and features on the Solid 60. So for now, take care. Love yous all. Peace.